everyone and welcome back to another episode of Deets with Dita. I'm your host Nandita and today we're talking about something really exciting this episode because I feel like it's one of my favourite films of like all time which is a big statement um, because I don't know there are so many films out there. There are so many films I have yet to see as well so who knows this maybe change this might change in the future. Um, but we're going to be talking about La La Land, and it's a revisited episode, so I did take great pride and, you know, happiness in re-watching this film, and I have so many thoughts, like, a lot, so this episode is going to be pretty jam-packed, I can already tell. So I'm going to, very similar to the last um, revisited episode, I'm going to be talking about the plot. So describing the plot, whether I thought it was like a good, cohesive, well-written plot. Then I'm going to talk about the cinematography. So the um, the way it was filmed, which um, is always very interesting. And then we've got the music, because the music in this film, as it is a musical, um, is extremely important to the narrative. So with that being said, let's get into it. Let's get into the plot. So the plot of this film, let's go over like the overall premise. So it's about two, there are really two main characters in this film. You've got Mia, who is a young, aspiring actress, wanting to make it on the big screen, um, doing everything in her power to try and make that dream possible for her. And then you've got more, you've got Sebastian, who's more of a struggling jazz artist, like, um, I don't know, brooding-esque type vibe from him and they cross paths and their lives and dreams kind of intertwine with each other um throughout the seasons right so it's not now this is something i really wanted to talk about because a lot of films a lot of the way i see a lot of films uh recently in cinemas they tend to drive their narrative based on location so this part of the film's in this place this part of the film is that place blah 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 right and so on this film does something really interesting in the sense that all of it's like if you want to split the film up into parts the key events happen within different seasons of the film so you have winter spring summer fall and then winter again but five years later um and i think this is extremely important because if we want to like go into hefty spoilers, because this this episode is going to be spoiler filled anyway, um, if you didn't already know, um, and it's like you start off with winter. When you think of the connotations of winter, you think cold, you think icy. You know, it's not it's not a very pleasant thing. And their first meeting was in winter. Um, and a very interesting thing to note is that they had met three times. They had met once in the car with the beeping scenario, once in the, um, he, when Sebastian was working in the restaurant for Christmas, and then one more time when they met in the party. There were two party scenes, but this was the second party um, that happened in the film. And so that's, the, I think the two, I think all three of those meetings, correct me if I'm wrong, happen all in winter. Um, which is interesting because it's like, you know, at the beginning their interaction is quite icy, quite um, snappy as well because like they're kind of, it's quite a witty banter and exchange between the two. And then you move on to spring which connotates like 
new beginnings, like growth and stuff like that, which is a perfect thing to start their new relationship. So they um, they end up meeting and they end up really enjoying each other's company and she ends up breaking up with her boyfriend that she only was with for one month, so it was not big of a deal. Um, and they end up, you know, going through trying to navigate potentially pursuing this relationship together and then summer is where it's like the hot fiery passion occurs you know that's when they start like have like the summer montage and like they are starting to like consolidate their relationship and then also with that hot and fiery and passion could lead to like some tension and I think that starts to bubble within the summer period as well. Um, and then you've got fall, which is maybe, I guess you can say the downfall of their relationship where it kind of all goes downhill because Sebastian's given up his dream of being in the, um, making his jazz club and ends up going to with, oh, what's his name? I don't remember the character's name, but John, Leg John Legend's character um, in his jazz, like, cool funky hip jazz band um and ends up going on tour and then they kept they and then she's doing her play and it's kind of like the roles are reversed there in the sense that one is now pursuing their passion and the other one's kind of just trying to get by and make the money so that kind of throws a spanner in the works if you want to say um and then you have the kind of mendings of it towards the end of fall but it still inevitably breaks off and then you've got the winter five years later where it's almost like it's a cyclical cycle where they meet again at the end of like uh, at, during the winter time um whilst once again sebastian is playing the piano and not this time it isn't sebastian who's walking out it's uh, mia which is like whoa full circle it's all come full circle but it's the the roles are reversed and it's like whoa um but I don't know, I think there is a lot to like about this film in terms of the plot. Um, there are a lot of parallels, I feel like, um, within the film and one I'd already mentioned, which is the first meeting of um, Seb and Mia and then the last meeting. They are both quite similar to each other, but as I said, the roles had been reversed. And then you have um, the audition scenes. So you have the very cutthroat, audition scenes where everyone looks like the same as each other um even Mia mentions it in the film as well that they're all like quote-unquote better versions of herself um when she goes off for these auditions and it's humiliating and embarrassing for her and then suddenly she has the impo uh, the important audition that skyrockets her career and it's like a complete contradiction because it's more personal it's more open the two people, the two casting um, member, casting, casting people, we'll go with casting people, are sitting there engaged rather than on their phones and stuff and they're completely different vibes of those two. And then you have um, the barista scene, which I think, you know, is such a nice touch where like one of the first things like we see Mia do is like, she's a coffee barista on the Warner Bros lot, which, I mean, that's pretty great. I, I wouldn't mind that. Um, and she ends up going, um, a celebrity ends up coming in and getting a coffee. 
and it's literally at the end of the film it's like her she's going into the water over his lot now and getting the coffee and it's like it's it's a nice it's a nice touch i don't know i like that i like the little little details of this film um so let's give a little bit more um into the plot i think mia as emma stone oh no not mia as emma stone emma stone as mia there we go got it right she was brilliant and believable um, in this role and um, a lot of people who may think that I don't know because this got a lot of critical acclaim like Academy Awards will get into that um, but she did end up winning uh, an Oscar for her role in this film um, and initially when I thought about it I was like Ryan when I first watched the film I was like Ryan Gosling did pretty good in this film you know why didn't he get like an Oscar for this his performance here well, A, there are a lot of other good films that were um, in the running that particular year. And B, I don't think this was Sebastian's story. I, although he was, his character was written in this film and he did have quite a big presence, I don't think it was his story. And I don't think it ever was meant to be his story, I think. I think uh, Damien Chazelle, I think that's how you pronounce his name, will go we'll go with that uh the director he i think he knew what he was doing and wanted to make it mia's story i'd like to think that he wanted to make it more of mia's story um and having said that ryan gosling you know he didn't win an oscar for it i still did think his performance was really good um you know who doesn't love ryan gosling i mean after this film absolutely in love with him he's amazing um Contrary to, I guess, popular belief, and by popular I mean just from like the people who I speak to about this film, I think this film was, like the romance in this film and the film in general was well written. Because I don't think, having said that the film is kind of Mia's story, there is like, that's one angle of looking at it, right? And then another angle of looking at it is, this film means more than just their story. And I've heard this said time and time again about this film being called A Love Letter to Hollywood. And I really, really agree with that. This film incorporates so many different aspects of um, trying to make it in Hollywood, whether it be as a director, a playwright, a musician, a like actress I don't know whether I said that already but you know I'm gonna say it again just to cover all bases and it definitely does that through this film it explores those in a very interesting way and very real way of like realistically does someone like Mia who's an aspiring actress want to keep on going and going and going and actually this is a line in one of the songs is that um in the beginning opening song uh, another day of sun um but the lyric goes like they say you've got to want it more and i think you definitely see that with mia in this film it's like she she wants to give up but then sebastian pulls her back and say look come on this is your dream you're crying like a little baby <laughs> like come on you can definitely go for this and she did have to want it more and i think she definitely did in the end at the end of it because she put so much passion into her audition um the last audition that she did so that's always 
that's always amazing and I think um, not only we're looking at it in a literal way but even like subtle hints of I guess Hollywood culture can I call it Hollywood culture or like yeah you know what I'm gonna call it Hollywood culture is like Los Angeles is basically seen as the home of cinema and the the big screen and you see the different locations um, within LA Hollywood type area and it just emphasizes the fact that that is where cinema is born and um, you know it's these scenes in these different locations they kind of they're kind of into like what's the word I'm looking for like they intertwine, uh, let's say intertwined again, they kind of intertwine with the facts, uh, with the little subtle hints that they do within the film about um, like different types and styles of cinema. I saw that ever present in this film, a lot to do with the soundtrack, because the soundtrack I believe is quite a big push for plot in this film. Um, and it, what I feel like it does perfectly is, well, perfect is subjective I believe it did it perfectly immaculately let's go with interesting adjectives is that it incorporated silent film like styles you know the feeling that you feel when you go to the cinema and you watch something for the first time the memories that you make um and I don't know it's yeah it felt like it covered quite a lot of basis in terms of like why like Hollywood culture, as I said, to begin with. So that is another thing that I extremely liked. And the locations were beautiful in this film, which we will get onto in cinematography. Overall, I think their romance was well written. They, I feel like both um, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone did amazing. All of the extras, extras who were in the film, especially the, um, all of Mia's friends in the song, Someone in the Crowd, they were all amazing. I love them. I wish they were in the film a little bit more, but they were all just amazing. And I thoroughly enjoyed everyone's performance in this film, which was pretty cool. Cinematography time. Um, this is probably one of my favorite segments because aesthetics and the way things look on the screen is always a really big thing to me personally and if it doesn't look good on the screen and if it isn't shot right the whole film can end up being an utter mess to me <laughs> so let's I guess talk about well for starters let's define cinematography because in the last revisited episode I'm not sure whether I defined it but I'm gonna define it again anyway so cinematography is the art of photography and camera work in filmmaking so the way the scene is shot, um, like the actual movement of the camera, the tracking of it and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, there are some really good films out there with some good cinematography. Um, I think one that I mentioned... And I think, you know, there are a lot of films that do it well. And I think this film definitely does. For starters, let's let's say um, Linus Sandgreen, he won 
at the Oscars for um, cinematography, which is amazing. And I understand why completely. For start, there are two things. There are two main things um, in terms of the camera work itself. So the movement of the camera, as I said at the beginning, um, that really impressed me a lot and makes me appreciate this film a lot more. One of my biggest, like biggest pet peeves um, in terms of watching a film, um, just any film, is shaky camera shots. Oh my goodness. If you have a shaky camera shot, like a shaky handheld camera shot in your film, oh my god, I I don't care what context it's used, I have never seen it to this day used properly. And it makes me so frustrated, like very, very frustrated. And I understand sometimes it's like about the budget and like sometimes you can't buy the equipment that kind of makes it look very seamless. But at the same time, oh, shaky handheld shots, no, 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 not fun, not fun at all. Um, and thank goodness, like, thank you, thank you, Linus. There are no shaky, as far as I'm like aware, I don't remember or recall any shaky handheld camera shots. And everything just felt so smooth gliding and seamless. And like, when, okay, the reason why I don't like shaky handheld shots is because it kind of makes you escape the immersion that you are like, you're in that specific scene. You know what I mean? Like when, when it starts shaking and being jittery, it's like you, especially in running scenes as well, I think if you have a smooth gliding shot of the person running, it is so much more effective than the handheld, you know, cameraman or woman actually running with the actor or actress. And yeah it's just it's not the one and it breaks that immersion as i said and you know you can suddenly feel disassociated with the film where a film is like seen as a form of escapism so definitely big props to this film for not including shaky camera shots like yes thank you um and speaking along the lines of like smooth gliding um you know nice crisp shall we call shots um in terms of motion there are a lot of scenes in this film that felt right emphasis on felt because i'm not sure whether they have been shot like this but they felt like one shot like they were shot all in one one take um and there are so many different examples of this um for example you have the house to party um, sequence where they're all getting ready when the song someone in the crowd is playing when they're all getting ready to go out and Mia's like I don't want to go out and then the girls are like no come on it'll be fun what if you meet that someone in the crowd um and yeah it's I think that was like you feel like you're holding your breath when that whole sequence happens because you're like oh my god wow, this is like all happening at once and it's so smooth and it's gliding. It's like, oh, it feels so seamless and amazing. And they, the director and the cinematographer utilize this skill very well 
to get the specific emotions that they want out of the character, like out of the audience, sorry. And yeah, definitely, definitely made me impressed, you know, another thumbs up. We love that. Um, the opening song as well is another thing that feels very one shot. I hope it was filmed as one shot because that was truly incredible. Um, and then I guess that's all I really have to say in terms of like the movement of the camera. But now let's more talk about the, I guess, the aesthetic, so the way that things look on the screen. So colours and lighting in this film, oh my god, like they are actually gorgeous. Oh my god, like if I could live in the aesthetic, like if I had to pick a film that I could live in the aesthetic in, I would pick La La Land, 100%. And it's so interesting why I would pick that. And there are so many different reasons. For starters, the colours. The colours in this film are so incredible. And it's interesting the way that they utilise the colours. Because I don't recall in many scenes there being heavily patterned clothing. There may have been small little details of patterning, but the main, I guess, focus and forefront of um, this film's colour like scheme and the aesthetic is block colours. And oh, and like having the same color, but then like different tones of it in the same like shot. And it's just like, oh my God, I'm fangirling so much. I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted and exactly what I needed is so great. Cause like you see their dresses, like let's go back to the someone in the crowd scene. When they, when Mia ends up finally being convinced to come and they are out on the street and they're all wearing the block color dresses and like, it's like the background is quite muted and then they're the pop of colour and then where you've got some other scenes where you don't want it to be as powerful like of a thing, you want it to be more soft that you have like the buildings in the background being a similar colour palette to what the actual actors and actresses are wearing and it's just like yes, I'm living for this, give me more films that do this, it was so cool. There was like in the summer montage especially they had these amazing matching aesthetics um which was super awesome um and this is all down to um the amazing people behind this and i feel like these people need to be highlighted we don't talk about when we think of a good film we think of or like an amazing film um if anything um we think about the actors and the actresses and directors Nah, 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 nah. We're gonna give the other people who are working behind the scenes, heads of departments, the credit. So we have David Wasco and Sandy Reynolds Wasco, which is a, they are a husband and wife duo. And they do um, a lot of, they do the, um, the production, like, oh, I can't remember the specific term, like set design, set production, stuff like that. They are a combo team. Um, so David Wasco is in charge of like the production design, so he designs all the sets, and then Sandy Reynolds is like the um, the set decorator. So she's in charge of like what things are going to be in what scene at what time, and how is how are all the elements in the shot actually improving the visuals and the aesthetic? And oh my goodness, they both uh, they won under the same like umbrella and. Yes, they definitely deserve to win. This film was so beautiful and I keep saying the aesthetics and like the backgrounds and like you can tell someone really took that time 
and attention to detail to make sure that background fits with the mood and the theme and the emotions in a specific scene and oh my god it makes me it makes me so happy these little details um and two people who i feel like didn't get as much credit because they didn't win but i feel like the costumes complemented like it feels like the costumes the set um and the set design and the set decorations were all kind of intertwined as one as like one thing and they should have like won as like a whole ensemble combo um but there were probably some other films that year that had better costumes so alex and mary who were both involved in the costume department both did such an amazing job with like styling and like makeup and like making sure the costumes look lovely and like the outfits and yeah i feel like that comes under like one of my favorite parts of the film which is the match matching aesthetic and i've already said this another thing so there were i said there were two th um two specific scenes that had the matching aesthetics good the first one was the someone in the crowd scene and then there was in the other one which was the summer montage scene from right in the moment when uh, Emma Stone gets into the car till the end of the montage, her outfits and her, um, Ryan Gosling's outfits fit the theme of the surroundings that they are, like fits the vibes of the surroundings that they're going to and it makes me so happy. Just little details like this warms my heart. Another thing that I found really, um, really pretty aesthetically in this film is the sky colors like i am a sucker for pink purple hues in the sky for when the sunset is happening oh my god absolutely adored it and especially in the boardwalk scene where sebastian is walking down uh across the boardwalk and he's saying city of stars for the first time and oh my god if i ever got to go to a place like that in real life I would actually melt because it would just be so amazing <laughs> um but definitely um my favorites but you know ha having said that this is my favorite film of all one of my favorite films of all time there are some things that i didn't like when i watched it over again because this is a revisited episode and i was dissecting this film so much um and there were two things there was and they were all stemmed from the same scene which was the party scene when uh within the someone in the crowd thing the fireworks the, there was a really weird shot where they lift up and it's just fireworks and then you lift back down and it's just like i don't get it maybe there's some hidden meaning or whatever to the fireworks they probably thought it through but that didn't hit with me i'm just like i i kind of it went over my head didn't really see the purpose of it um and then the flashes of images like you know it's like a travel interlude so when they get into the car and there's like this suddenly travel interlude with all these like neon lights like flashing and fading from the screen uh in the background of like a city skyline and i'm just like hmm, i don't like this scene i don't know it broke the immersion of the scene is what i felt but yeah those are only two of my non-favorite like the way things were filmed or edited or whatever in this film um but overall cinematography in this film is absolutely beautiful it won awards and i completely understand why um so now i guess it's time to move on to one of the most important parts of the film which is music creating an iconic film score isn't an easy thing to do and i think 
Justin Hurwitz did it absolutely amazingly. I have never heard, well, okay, I've heard many scores that kind of are a staple for the film. Like you've got your, your Star Wars, your Indiana Jones, your Jurassic World, um, specific theme tunes that you will be able to recognize in a heartbeat and I think if anyone watches this film and listens to the soundtrack outside of this film would definitely agree that it it is that level of iconicness and it is no surprise that Justin won for this film he won an award um for best soundtrack or score was it score I think it was score um and the music was just as important if not more important than the dialogue in this film it's just amazing. So we're going to split, I've decided for this segment of the show <laughs> that we are going to split it up. So we're going to split up the songs in this film to score songs, which have come, a score is the backing track, if you want to say. So like the instruments only without any vocals. So you've got the score and then you've got the songs of the film. And I'm going to talk about each one and what I thought of them and how I like, how they made me feel and like so let's start off with the scores so i do strongly recommend if you want to understand i guess what i'm talking about maybe like the score is only a 43 minute listen to like and it's quite pleasant and enjoyable to just have along in the background same as my podcast um and you should definitely check all these songs out so we'll start off with mia and sebastian's theme mia and sebastian's theme is the pinnacle of all like the way that this film score is written it's like that was I, f- I feel like that was the first thing that was written and then everything else in this film kind of stemmed off of it because that tune is like the benchmark of the meeting and like that's the key important thing of their relationship like because that's the tune that they first met to and it has a lot of emotion and Sebastian, uh, me and Sebastian's theme will forever be probably one of my favorite pieces of score from this film because it just it does really tie. It's like that's the the thread that's kind of being um, weaved throughout the film um, and like creating new branches and stuff. I don't know. It's like I want to use a cool metaphor. Let's say this was this is like the trunk if we're going to talk about it as like a tree this is the trunk of the film and then all the branches and leaves that are growing off of it stem from me and sebastian's theme there we go we used a metaphor um so definitely love this one hermit's habitat is the very much when um sebastian's trying to like influence his jazz loving to her uh, to Mia and it's very cute it's like it's very upbeat I I learned a lot about jazz in this film that I didn't really know about before which is amazing always love to learn some stuff and this um Herman's Habit I think I would pleasantly listen to after like this film is over um and there are there are rare like soundtracks are really difficult to make you want to listen to after you know what i mean it's like a very difficult thing to do but it 
you feel like you want to just jump up and dance, um, as Mia does very um, often in this film. The next score I wanted to talk about was the Planetarium. So the Planetarium, I don't think it's one I would particularly listen to outside of the context of this film, but within the context of this film, this score is amazing. It incorporates the the kind of the sounds and like the stylistic um, music type things. I'm not a music expert, so I don't know what I'm saying. I'm trying to make it look sound like I know what I'm saying, but the the type of music that was played within this there were two once at the very beginning which felt like very like you know back in like the beginning of cinemas where you there wouldn't be much dialogue and instead there would be more music and sound effects um describing what's going on in the scene that definitely because this was when they break into griffith's um observatory observatory um and the beginning bit when they're actually entering it for the first time felt very um silent like um old olden style movie vibes and then the other half of this score is very much whimsical fantasy like kind of similar to what i spoke about in the shape of water episode um the revisited episode for that one it felt very whimsical and fantasy like and kind of almost makes it feel like a fairy tale and like it incorporates that element of um, Hollywood and cinema into it which is pretty amazing if you haven't listened to the Shape of Water episode it's brilliant go listen to it now um but definitely get those whimsical vibes of when me and Sebastian are like literally floating off of the air and like I don't know break into dance and it's lovely do love that um Then we have the summer montage, which I think is very good, very nice, easy to listen to. Um, Again, I don't think I would particularly listen to it again after the film. Same with the other ones, like the engagement party and the like, the ending, like the closing credit um, scroll score. But what I will say, there is one um, particular score that I absolutely loved, which was the epilogue score. Because what it did, it managed to encapsulate all of the the key scores and key sounds that we heard within this film to basically tell like a seven minute story of what Mia and Sebastian's life could have been like if they ended up being together. And that was brilliant. I definitely enjoyed the way that they did that. Um, so that's all it for scores. So songs, I, okay. Another Day of Sun, oh my god, absolutely love it. It's, it makes you it makes you want to dance. This song feels like the love letter to Hollywood. It feels like, if any of the songs feel out of place in this film, I like, as in, it doesn't fit with the plot, I think it's this one, but not. it doesn't fit with, like, the point-blank, like, actual narrative, but more within, like, as I mentioned in the, like, beginning when I was talking about the plot, it fits more with the like interwoven thing of like the love letter to Hollywood type thing. Um, so that, but I did think it was an amazing song. Another day of song, like absolutely amazing. The one shot scene, oh my God, everything about it was absolutely amazing. Such a strong opening to a film. Someone in the crowd, oh my God, absolutely love this one. Um, I think the slow-mo bit where like the song kind of like slows down is really 
I really liked it. It was effective. I didn't think it would be as effective as I thought it was, but yeah, it was pretty good. Um, City of Stars, there's two versions. There's the Ryan Gosling one on his own, and then the one with Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. I controversially prefer the Ryan Gosling version. The lyrics of his ones are a lot more passionate. It's him on his own, and he's like, you know, wandering the streets, like daydreaming about his like newfound romance that he was definitely not expecting to have. And yeah, it's it's really adorable. And like, obviously the City of Stars um, with Emma Stone is pretty good as well and felt very heartwarming. Um, but I don't know, I just prefer the Ryan Gosling version one better. Now there's one song in this film that it fits with the narrative, but I it's the one song that I don't have on my phone of, of this film, which is Start a Fire, which is with John Legend and, um, you know, Ryan Gosling and their little band, like their jazz, like modern day jazz band. And I don't know, didn't like it very much, would not listen to it, like outside the context of the film. Um, but yeah, it, but it fits within the context so you've got to give it that then finally we have the audition which is the fools who dream so super passionate solo by emma stone and i do love it i have to be in a particular mood to listen to it um because it's a very like storytelling song and i feel like you need to be in a specific vibe to listen to a like properly storytelling song um but it's still amazing um less likely to listen to it outside the context of the film but that's not to say it's a great it's a great song it's a pretty pretty amazing song um so yeah that's all of the music within this film and i think justin Hurwitz did a brilliant job carried the plot carried the narrative um so i guess that's a perfect way to wrap up um this la la land episode i really hope you enjoyed the content that I spoke about and let me know if you found like any other things that you when you rewatched La La Land like any of the other things that you picked up on that maybe I hadn't picked up on I'd definitely love to know that um and I guess now we should move on to the infamous segment of the show so it's time for the recommend or to the back end segment of the show this week it is kind of themed but not on purpose um not with La La Land no gosh no um it's actually themed on jim carrey movies so i don't know for what reason i have just been watching a load of jim carrey movies um recently but i recently watched the mask and yes man um and also the truman show and i plan on watching sonic the hedgehog at some point because it's available to rent on amazon prime for 199 i'm like you know what that's a bargain um and i really wanted to watch it anyway and you know i plan on watching um eternal was it eternal sunshine of a spotless mind i want to say that's the title of that film but i've heard good things about that one um so today we're going to be talking about um let's start off with the recommend which is the mask so i had never seen the mask before um which is crazy i know like slap on the wrist how have i not seen this film before but it recently came on Netflix and I was super happy. It was the, one of the first things I was going to put on my list. Like, yes, I need to watch this film. And I ended up watching it. And 
oh my goodness, was this film amazing. The premise is basically Jim Carrey, I don't even remember his name in the film, but you know what, it's fine. Jim Carrey, he he finds this mask. Um, where does he even find it? Wow, I have a very bad memory, but he finds it. And um, he realizes that when he puts it on, he like dawns this whole different persona of a more charismatic version of himself. And um, he, it kind of explores what he does with that and how the narrative unfolds, I guess, with him in his everyday life. Was his name Carl? No, I think that's the other film. I think the other film his name was Carl. <laughs> Oops. Uh, but it's okay, it's fine, it's all fine. Um, but definitely um, recommend watching this. I do think the MVP of this film though was Milo the dog. I'm not gonna say what else why because I don't wanna spoil it. You guys have to watch this film if you haven't already, but Milo, oh my goodness, you are absolutely amazing, you legend. Like, round of applause, you truly amazing. <laughs> Um, so then I guess that moves on to the back end of this week, which is Yes Man. Um, no, man, I did not enjoy this. Um, it was, I don't know, it just felt, it wasn't something, I went in it with an open mind. I know nothing about it and it was a very like, oh, so like this person, the premise is this guy named Carl he always says no and he's quite a pessimist in life and he goes to this like seminar type thing that tells him like you should say yes man to everything instead of saying no um and it unfolds how his life is progressively getting better i guess by him saying this but is it really is it getting better is it not getting better who knows um and yeah it's like it's pretty pretty interesting they the th the reason why i didn't like this film too much is that it just felt kind of generic um it's not one of my favorite jim carrey films and i think because i'm used to him being quite eccentric with his roles um but i think this film was just not as eccentric as i've seen him and i think he does that the best yeah, I guess I guess that's what I'll say. What I didn't know is that Jess from New Girls in this, and I was like, what? Why is she in this? And then her character just felt very much the same, as like a similar vibe to Jess, even though it's not the same as Jess, but it felt very similar vibes to her. And then I was reading a load of Letterbox reviews on this, and it definitely like there were loads of them saying how like oh, she, she definitely played like all of this specific type of role for all the films that came out in this era and we don't know how she did it. And honestly, yeah, I don't know how she did it. But nonetheless, I absolutely love her. She's so amazing. Um, but it's not really a recommend-worthy film. If you want to watch it, it's on Netflix too. But I don't know. It's not one of my favourite films. So definitely has to go to the back end. And I guess that wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and continuing to support the podcast. If you haven't already, you should definitely follow me on Instagram at twit and Twitter at Dietzwedita for both. If you want to give me recommend to the back end suggestions, episode suggestion ideas, just keep up with what I'm watching, regular film, like 
things. You can definitely get all the updates on those social medias. Um, and if you're listening on Google Podcasts or Spotify, definitely give that podcast a follow. If you are on Apple Podcasts, hello. And um, definitely give it a subscribe. And if, you know what, if you want, you should leave a little rating review. It definitely helps me. And it's it's amazing to hear your feedback from the podcast. So definitely give a rating and review. Much appreciated. And I guess... If you want to see what films I'm watching on a day-to-day basis, you should definitely check out my Letterboxd account. It's underscore Nandita underscore. Um, You can find all the films I may have not mentioned on the episode, like right now, which is pretty awesome. And I guess that's all I really have to say. Um, Oh, no, I have one more. I have, I almost forgot, almost forgot. So next week's episode is going to be the All Things MCU Phase 3, so we're back at it again with the MCU films phase three but we're splitting phase three into two parts because there are too many films and I don't want to have an extremely long Marvel episode that is just going to keep droning on and on so we're going to split into two parts so it's the first half of phase three films which I will let you know on the Instagram and Twitter which ones we're going to be covering in those ones and um you should definitely look forward to it so Thank you once again for listening and supporting, and I will see you next week. Bye, everyone.